Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. We'll be reading from Romans 10, 5 through 13. Sorry. And the word of the Lord reads, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or, Who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Robert Murray McShane once wrote, When the voice of Christ speaks through, his, through the word, then you will arise and leave all and follow him. So this morning as we worship um, the Lord, and as we prepare our hearts again for the climax of Holy Week, which is Easter, we encounter in our text in Romans today the beautiful simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Paul so eloquently writes in verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Church family, that's how simple and how elegant and how beautiful the message of the gospel is. The message that we have all received, the message that we all believe, the message that we carry with us, and the message that we are called to proclaim to everyone around us, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the message that the world so desperately needs to hear, right? And, and, and that is the open call of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that Paul, the apostle, has been explaining in this letter to the church in Rome. Now, with that, it's important that we remember who the Apostle Paul is and why the letter is important. Sometimes it's easy for me to um, assume that everybody's all on the same page with respect to all these things. And so I think it's important for us to think about who Paul is. The Apostle Paul was a man who once was named Saul, and he hated Christians. He was a man who took part in the early persecution of Christians by the Jews who rejected Christ. Paul himself was responsible for the, for the arrest and the death of many early Christian people. In fact, Paul believed that it was his duty to go before God as a devout Jew to go out into the world and put an end to the Christian movement. He saw it as his personal mission to stop Christianity in its tracks. It was a call that he took very very seriously. And, and it was while he was on the road to Damascus, where he was headed to that city to kill and to arrest Christians, that he encountered the risen Jesus Christ um, and his life was changed. In fact, if you would just turn with me to Acts chapter 9, I'd like for you to see this with your own eyes. Acts chapter 9 is just a few pages back before Romans. Acts chapter 9 and verse 1, but Saul, which that was, his, that was his name, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked, for, uh, asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that he, if he found any who belonged to the way, that's what they used to call the Christian faith, the way, 
men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But arise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice and seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. He was literally blind. And they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither, and neither ate nor drank. And there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And, he told, and, he, and, and the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision, in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard of from, from many about this man how much evil he has done to, to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus has appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. What a dramatic, what a dramatic conversion story. Right? And, it, and, it, was, and it was after this event in his life that, that God used Paul to not only be somebody who is an example, but he spread the message of Christ all over Asia Minor. He spread the message of the gospel all over the Mediterranean and all over Eastern Europe. He planted churches all over Asia, including Ephesus. And he visited churches and he encouraged believers all the way until his death at the hands of the Romans in AD 66. And he wrote many, many letters to the churches to encourage them and to uplift them and to rebuke and to correct false teaching. In fact, I don't know if you realize, but the Bible that you have, the New Testament you have, two-thirds of it was made up of letters written by Paul. He wrote three letters to pastors, First and Second Timothy and Titus. He wrote one letter to the Jewish believers, the book of Hebrews, and ten other uh, letters to various churches, including this letter that we've been studying, the book, the letter to the Romans. God took this Christian-hating Pharisee who was all about the law and He changed his heart so that he would believe and then He used him to proclaim this simple message of the gospel which simply says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And God used Paul to write letters to the Romans this letter to the Romans that we've been walking through in our series titled The Power of the Gospel. And he wrote this letter, if you remember, for three basic reasons. Number one, he wanted to build a relationship with the church there because he wanted to, to create a new base of operation in Rome so he can go further west with the gospel into Europe. Second, he wrote the, this letter to ease the tension between the Jewish and Gentile Christians in the church. The Roman church, which, had, which would started by Jewish believers actually became dominated by Gentile leadership because in 89, I mean, excuse me, 49 AD, Emperor Claudius of Rome kicked all the Jewish people out of the city of Rome for a period of time. And when the Jews returned, they found that it was almost exclusively a Gentile church. And so there were some cultural struggles in the church as, as the Jews became reintegrated into the church population. You see, difficulty between different groups of people and different cultures is not something new in our era, as some people might have you to believe. 
But Paul wrote this letter to ease that tension. But third, and most importantly, Paul wrote this letter to explain in clear detail what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. So everybody is on the same page. And the result is a masterpiece of Christian theology. We know what we know about the gospel because Paul has clearly explained it. In fact, this letter, if you, if you remember, is broken down into two major sections. The first is, is theological. The second is practical. The first section, chapters 1 through 11, is where Paul unpacks in great detail what everybody needs to know about the gospel. It's the theological stuff, right? But then in chapters 12 through 16, Paul's going to explain how we live practically in light of that truth. What do we do with what we have learned? And so the first part is about what you need to know. The second part is about what you need to do or how you live based on what you know. And to this point, we have been working our way through the theological part of the letter. And what we have seen to this point is Paul, first of all, explained what the gospel is. It is the bad news of mankind's condition that we are sinners, but it's the good news of what Christ has done so that we can be saved. He also explains the blessings the gospel gives us, that, that we have peace with God and that we have access to Him by faith. He also explains how the gospel works. How is it that, that Jesus Christ can stand in our place? How is it that Jesus Christ can be our substitute? Paul explains how that works. And then he talks about the freedom that we have in the gospel. Freedom from the penalty of sin, freedom from the power of sin, and freedom from the curse of the law. And then he talks about the surety of the hope for those who trust in Christ. That we are told that if you believe in Christ, you are safe in the hands of God and nothing can snatch you out of his hands. And then Paul then defends the gospel against several important objections like, how, like why do so many Jews reject the gospel? And if God is in control, doesn't that mean that, that God is either unfair or man just can't be held responsible for what he does? Paul makes it clear that God is absolutely sovereign in salvation and his election is the deciding factor on who will come to him. But mankind is still responsible for his sin because he is a sinner by his own free will. We all have sinned because we wanted to. And then he helps us to see that the gospel is the intersection of God's justice and mercy. God's justice requires that wrath, his wrath be poured out on, on sin and sinners. But Christ bore that wrath on the cross for us so that we can be extended God's mercy and grace. And then where we ended up last week is with the truth that no person in all of human history except for Christ can justify themselves before God. No one can save themselves. We were emphatic about that truth. And the reason for that is because no one can live up to the, what God requires of us. God requires absolute moral perfection in order to be right in right relationship with Him, but we have all failed to attain that. But Christ not only died for our sins, He lived for our righteousness. And so that by faith in Christ, not only are our sins credited to Him, but our right, His righteousness is credited to us. We are perfectly righteous in the sight of God because of what Jesus did. Not because of what we do, because of what Jesus did for us. And in light of that, Paul now is going to help us to see the absolute simplicity and the glorious beauty of the gospel that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And, and church, this is, this is a verse worth thinking about and meditating on and memorizing and making it part of your, the rest of your life. Everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Not maybe, will be. What a beautiful expression of the hope that we have in Christ and the hope that we have to share with the rest of the world. Everyone who calls will be saved. This is the open call of the gospel. This is the open invitation to the entire world, right? Come to Jesus and be saved. Paul says in 2 Corinthians you know, chapter 6, he says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 
Today is the day of salvation. Come to Jesus and be saved. This is the invitation that we offer to everyone that is around us. You see, the invitation is not come and be religious. The invitation is not come and now you better get busy obeying a bunch of rules and and obeying the law. The invitation is not come and join our little group and follow these rules and and get sealed in some man-made temple. The invitation is not come and perform some rituals and rites and do penance and hopefully maybe if you're good enough you could be saved. The invitation is, is so simple that it eludes people. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. It, I say it, but people miss it. It's that simple. Repent and believe the gospel. Trust in Jesus. That's, that's it. And, and, and the truth is this invitation is open to all, to everyone. God is certainly sovereign and has mercy on whom he has mercy, but he holds out the gospel to all people and invites them to come. And this is not only an invitation, but it's also a promise. A promise that you can hold on to. Notice how Paul words this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I know how much you love Greek grammar, but i got to share a little bit with you, right? The word that Paul uses here that gets translated as will be saved is future tense, indicative, passive. And you're like, what does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. What that means is salvation is a fact that will come to pass in the future. It's indicative. It's indicating a fact, a fact in reality. That this will come to pass for all who call on the name of the Lord, right? And it's passive, meaning that salvation isn't dependent upon the one who believes. It's dependent upon the one whom we believe in. It depends on God. And so this isn't just an invitation. This is a a promise, right? And so when we share the hope of Christ with other people, when you share the hope of Christ with your family, with your friends, with your neighbors, with strangers, right? And we invite them to believe you are promising them. And actually God is promising through you that, that if they will believe, that if they will call upon Christ in faith, they will without question be saved. That's how simple the gospel is. Believe and be saved. Believe and live, as the Apostle John puts it. Now, the reason why I emphasize this point is because there's something in mankind that needs to distort this. There's something in mankind that struggles to accept just how simple this this truth is. As we talked about last week, the gravitational pull for religious people tends to be towards legalism and self-righteousness. There is just something ingrained in us that thinks, I just need to do something to earn my way back to God. It's kind of how we, our culture is built. I I made the mess, then I need to clean it up. I I just need to try harder. I just need to be more committed. I just need to be more sincere. I just need to, to punish myself. How many people throughout history have have punished themselves physically, emotionally, and psychologically in an attempt to make themselves right with God. I need to be more serious about my religion. I just need to get right with God. And, and, and it's that impulse that has led to every form of heretical religion that calls itself Christian. That's why there are people who save, yeah, I'm saved by grace. I just need to keep earning grace. Missing the point that grace isn't something you can earn. There are people, many people in our community who will say these words, famous words. We are saved by grace after all that we can do. It's not grace. I once met a lady who was a member of this church many, 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 many years ago. She actually grew up in this church. But now she's a part of a heretical group that claims to be the only true church in the world who has written or rewritten their own Bible translation and goes door-to-door passing out little pamphlets with little watchtower symbols on them. And, you know, we've had many opportunities to talk. I mean, you know, we're friends, but I was led to just ask. I said, "What, what caused you to leave 
this church and the people that were here that obviously loved you, what was the issue? Did somebody hurt you? Did, did somebody do something? No, she says. She says, you Baptists think that you're saved by grace. And I'm going to tell you, that's not the truth. There has to be more to it than that. That's her exact words to me. I said, what do you mean? She goes, you have to be serious about obedience. If you're not, then you're not really a Christian. I was like, I said, are you sure? She goes, yes, you have to be serious about obeying God's law. The gravitational pull for religious people is towards legalism and self-righteousness. The impulse inside so many people to reject the gospel is, 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 is because we just struggled with the simplicity of it. Turn to Christ by faith and be saved. And again, Paul addresses this, this simplicity. He writes, for Moses writes about the righteousness based on the law that a person who does the commandments shall live by them. Paul, as he does throughout his letter, doesn't just give you his opinion. He builds his argument on the Old Testament and he quotes Leviticus 18 verse 3 where Moses lays out the law and says that those who can keep the law will live by them. But what's the problem that we have all, every one of us, come to understand? No one keeps the law. We can't do it. It's impossible for us. In fact, Paul makes the point emphatic in his letter to the Galatians. By the way, another letter that he wrote that's in your Bible. In chapter 3, verse 10, he says, For, we all, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Why? For it's written, cursed be everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. You see, not only does, does the law say that a person... Does, the, does a person who keep the law will live by it, but it also says those who can't keep the law are cursed by it. And it also says if you break any part of the law, even the tiniest, most inconsequential part of it, you're guilty of breaking the entire law and to be under a curse. And so the point that Paul is making is it doesn't matter what the law promises you because the fact remains you can't keep it. You can't do it. Everyone fails at keeping the law. That's why he says in Galatians, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. He also said that in Romans chapter 3. He says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. If you remember, we see that the purpose of the law isn't to save us, because it can't. We can't keep it. The law actually shows us who we really are. It shows us what sin is and how sinful we have become and then how desperately we need for someone to save us. And so Paul continues and says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that a person who does the commandments shall live by them, which is impossible. But the righteousness based on faith, the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, which that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, I'm going to admit that this is a bit of text that's really kind of easy to trip over because it doesn't flow very well, right? And we're like, what, what, what is he saying here? I mean, it's really easy to get confused what, what Paul is saying here. In fact, you read through it and you see there's parentheses about every like half of a, you know, half of a phrase. It's a, a run-on sentence and it's, it's easy to kind of jumble this up. Um, because what does it mean to ascend into heaven and then bring Christ down and descend in the abyss and raise Christ from the dead? It seems really cryptic. Well, the simple truth is, there is there's a context of what Paul is saying. Paul, again, is actually referring to something that was said in the Old Testament, and he refers again to the Old Testament to make his point. And his point, and, just, and I'm going to save you a lot of detailed conversations of stuff I read in commentaries, right? But the point is simply this. Righteousness based on the law is impossible, but righteousness by faith is simple. That's really the overarching point of what he's saying there in that complicated statement. Now, I know it seems more complicated than that, but that's the essence of it. 
What he's saying is righteousness by the law requires that you must do everything perfectly. You must keep the law perfectly, which means you must always worship God exactly the way that, you were, that you're called to, that you, that you must reverence God perfectly at every moment in your life, and that you must treat all other people with love and respect perfectly. You need to love everyone around you as you love yourselves. You need to never be jealous, never be envious, never ever lie, never gossip. You must never ever have a hateful thought in your heart. You must be sexually pure, which means Jesus says that you must never have even like the hint of a lustful thought. Otherwise, you have broken all of the law and under its curse. Righteousness by the law requires perfect obedience, and that is impossible. But contrast that to righteousness by faith. Righteousness by faith requires no extraordinary effort on your part. You don't have to do the impossible to be saved. Right? That's, that's the good news of the gospel. You see, in Jewish culture, there were a few things that were considered absolutely impossible for a human to do. The first was ascending into heaven on his own power. Mankind can't ascend into heaven on his own. You can't jump there, you can't fly there, and you can't build a building tall enough to reach there. By the way, that was the whole point of the Tower of Babel, was they were trying to reach heaven, and God was like, you guys are really dumb, right? And he knocked it down and then confused their language, right? You can't reach heaven by your works of might or, or effort. It's impossible for man to reach heaven on his own. The other thing that's impossible for man to do is to dive in the depths of the abyss. Now, the Old Testament, this is actually a reference to someone diving in to and swimming to the bottom of the sea and then successfully returning, right? That is impossible. All right, now this diving into the depths of the sea was also a metaphor for death as well. And that's how Paul interprets this. He interprets this as meaning the grave. And what Paul is leveraging is, is what everybody already knows. No one descends to where the dead go and then comes back on their own. That's the point that he's making. It's impossible for us. And so what Paul is doing is he's using the Old Testament to illustrate his point that righteousness by the law is impossible, but righteousness by faith is not. It doesn't require that you do the impossible, like fly to heaven on your own or descend into Hades or the bottom of the ocean and come back alive. It doesn't require monumental effort. It's actually quite simple. It's actually much easier than trying to obey the law. But notice Paul is even more expressive than that. He, he, he says, Christ himself is our hope. And, and, if, and if we, you know, we are to be saved, we are to come to him. And what Paul is saying is in order for us to, to be close to Christ, we don't have to try to, to reach up to heaven to go get him. Right? By the way, all religion besides Christianity is man's attempt to reach up to heaven in order to attain God. But the Christian faith is God came here to be with us. And what Paul is saying is in order for us to be close to Christ, we don't have to try to reach into heaven to bring him down because he already came to be with us. That's why we celebrate Christmas, right? It's the incarnation. God became flesh. We don't have to try to go to the grave or the abyss to reach him and bring him back from the dead because he already came back. He is already alive. In fact, the Bible tells us if, if you're in Christ, Christ is in you. What Paul is driving home is righteousness by the law is impossible, but righteousness by faith in Christ isn't. It's, it's simple because Christ came to be with us. We don't have to perform miraculous feats. We don't have to climb to the heights of heaven or swim to the bottom of the sea. We don't have to grit our teeth really hard and try perfectly to maintain self-control and never make a mistake ever again. We don't have to memorize every possible law of God and every possible variation of that law that fits every possible scenario and every situation. One of the common questions that, that people ask me is, well, is it a sin to do this? Well, yes. Well, what about this circumstance? Well, that's a little harder to define. We don't have to know every one of those answers to be saved. 
We just turn to Christ by faith who came to us. He came into the world to be with us, to walk in our shoes and to suffer with us. And he died in our place and three days later rose again in victory, proving that what he, what he claimed is true, that he is God in the flesh and that he can do what he promised. And the promise that he made is that he can save us from our sins and the wrath of God. We don't have to do the impossible because Christ did it for us. He's the one who kept the covenant of works that Adam failed to keep in the garden when God said, you obey me and you'll live. He's the one who kept the law that everyone's required to keep, but we can't. He's the one who earned in his humanity a perfect righteous standing with God, a righteousness we could never earn. And he is the one who then endured on the cross the awful and terrible wrath of God that we deserve, that we would never be able to withstand. And he died in our place, making atonement for sins that we could never atone for. And then he did what nobody else has ever done. He came back from the dead, conquering sin and death forever. We don't have to do the impossible because Christ did it all for us. All we must do is believe. It's that simple. And Paul says, what does it say? The word is near you. So it's not in heaven, right? It's not in the abyss. It is near you. It is here in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim the gospel. It is here for everyone to receive it. And then it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Salvation is not about what we do for God. It's about what Christ has done for us. And then trusting in that. We don't have to keep the law to be saved. We don't have to be religious to be saved. You don't have to be baptized to be saved. Now, if you're in Christ, you need to get baptized because Christ said to get baptized. But that's not the basis of your salvation. You don't have to read the Bible six hours a day and pray three more a day to be saved. You don't have to wear certain clothes. You don't have to have your tattoos removed. You don't have to, to, to listen to only certain kinds of music. You don't have to eat certain foods and avoid certain foods to be saved. Praise the Lord, by the way. I'm just saying that bacon is proof that there is a God, that He loves us and wants us to be happy. Okay? Just saying. The reality is, is, you must just simply put your faith in Christ and Him alone. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. It's that simple. Now, even though it's simple, even though it's that clear, you still must come to faith in Christ. Right? You still must believe. You can't get all the way there and Christ have done it all for you and then go, ha, I'm not sure. This is the part a lot of people will miss. This is the part that people ignore. Salvation is not about my effort and what I can do for God. And then, then, right? It's what God has done for me because God is gracious, right? But understand, God is gracious, but doesn't mean that He's going to save everyone. The truth is the gospel is open to everyone. Everyone is welcome to come, but not everybody gets saved. Why? Because you still have to believe. That's the part that we must do. We cannot get away from. We must exercise faith. You must put your faith in Christ. You still have to exercise faith. You have to repent and believe the gospel because without faith, exactly, it's impossible to please God. And no one gets saved. God is gracious and merciful, and Christ has done it all for us. But none of that will matter unless you receive it by faith. 
I can give you all the gifts I want to. But if you don't reach out and take them, I can give you anything. This is an unpopular truth, by the way. And this is one that offends a lot of people. You mean to tell me of all the religions in the world, you're saying that, that, that Jesus is the only way. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. But understand, I'm not the one that's actually saying that. It's, it's not me who made that up. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just the mailman. I don't write the mail. God is the one who said that. John chapter 14, in the words of Jesus, he says, I am the way, not a way, the way, the truth, and the life. And if that weren't clear enough, then he goes on and says, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one, no one, no one, no one. And just in case we missed it, and maybe we, we think, well, that's just a misunderstanding of the text. Jesus said in John chapter 3, everybody's favorite verse, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Which you can draw the inference that if you don't believe, then you will perish. But again, He didn't leave any doubt. He says, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And in verse 18, He says... Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he didn't believe in the name of the only Son of God. It's not something that I made up. It's what God Himself says. Christ did all that was, that was impossible for us, and the call is open for all to come, but the only ones who put their faith in Christ will be saved. Is that clear? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but only those who actually will call will be saved. But then how do you call then? How do we call upon the name of the Lord? Well, Paul explains that too. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In in this part of the text, Paul explains how we avail ourselves of the gospel. How do, how do we attain the blessings the gospel promises? How do we receive the hope that is so certain? And Paul essentially reduces it down to two verbs. Believe and confess. Believe the truth and confess the truth. You see, Paul is telling us that, that our faith involves both an internal and external element. We believe in our hearts internally and confess it externally. By the way, that's what baptism is. See, baptism doesn't save you, but it's that external profession that I'm identifying with the church and with Christ. Our faith must become inward and outward, which, by the way, then stands in conflict with what the world is telling us. You see, what, what the world is telling Christians is you can, you can believe whatever you want to believe. You can think whatever you want to think, but you better keep it to yourself. Tell me I'm wrong. Increasingly, Christians are being told, whether in the public square or on social media, you know what, you can believe what you want, but you just need to keep it to yourself. You just need to shut up. Right? You just need to keep it out of work. You just need to keep your Christian beliefs out of school. You can believe what you want to believe, but you better be quiet when it comes to social and political issues. You need to shut up and, and not push your faith on other people. That's what the world is telling us. That's what our, our, our own country is telling us. By the way, this is the world is getting actually more violent about insisting we shut up. Three adult adults, staff members, and three children were brutally murdered. On a Christian, at a Christian school by a woman who identifies as a man. Why? Because her faith stands in contrast to her worldview. That's the simple narrative of that. Their faith affirms God's existence and His created order, which includes our genders. And so she, she killed them. And what's astonishing to me is how so many people in the world around us are so upset about people misgendering her rather than being upset about the fact that she killed six innocent people. That's just astonishing to me. By the way, this isn't new. 
For many years, Christians have been told, you're just a bunch of bigots and homophobes and, and transphobes and racists and you know, women haters, and you just need to keep your beliefs to yourself and shut up. You just need to shut your mouths. And this cultural shift, by the way, has emboldened people to take matters in their own hands. We are hearing more and more of calls to, to violence towards people who have a biblical view of the world. But the fact is, our faith, even with the specter of persecution and violence, still requires for us to, to make confession. We must believe the truth and confess the truth. Right? By the way, that's also how it's been throughout history, that Christians put their faith in Jesus Christ, and then the world sees that, and what do they do? Say, you better deny them, and when they don't, then persecution comes. Well, the truth is we must believe and confess. Paul says we must believe that God raised Christ from the dead. And that's really the shorthand for the gospel, by the way. We must believe that Jesus came into the world, that he lived a perfect sinless life, that he willingly died on the cross for our sins, and that he was buried and he rose again in victory. That's why we celebrate Easter. We must believe that's the truth. We must believe in, in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. We must believe the, the gospel, the good news. That's the emphasis there. Well, then what do we need to confess then? Well, Paul says we must confess that Jesus is Lord. And this is a very important statement for us to really get, get clear about today because our confession demonstrates what we know about Christ as well as what we believe about Him. Notice that Paul says that, that we are to confess Jesus is Lord. This right here is actually one of the earliest creeds ever recorded. Right? This is one of the, the creeds that the church had created identifying how we are to believe Jesus is Lord. It's a first century confession, kind of like the Confession of Faith, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, or the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message. The early church held a creed and a confession, and one of the earliest expressions of that phrase is, Jesus is Lord. And so this expression is foundational to our confession. But why this expression? Why the words, Jesus is Lord? Well, a couple things. First, there was a lot of pressure on Christians to confess other things as Lord. Caesar is Lord, right? But also, this confession of Jesus being Lord reveals some important things about who He is and our relationship to Him. Notice, first of all, our confession that... We're not, to, we're not confessing that Jesus is my friend, right? Paul didn't write that. And don't misunderstand, Jesus is our friend, right? In fact, the Bible says that he calls us friend. And, and I would say that, that he better be your best friend. I know that he's mine. But the basis of my confession isn't my friendship with him. The basis of my confession is his lordship over my life. You see, Jesus is Lord, not my homeboy. Right? It's popular for people today to take Jesus and want to reduce him down and make him like one of us and make him hyper-relatable. Right? People want to just look at him as just one of our, our, our friends, one of our boys. We want to see Jesus as hip or cool and, and apathetic towards our sins like our friends are. Let's be honest. Most of our friends are very apathetic about the stupid things that we can do, right? In fact, even some of our friends are right there encouraging us to do it. We want to see Jesus kind of like in that same kind of human relationship. But Jesus is not like us. I mean, he does have a few, full human nature, right? And he came to relate to us, but he's not like us. He is the perfect, sinless Lamb of God. He is completely holy and righteous. And you're not. He is our Lord, and this word Lord is a very loaded term. First of all, the word Lord means sovereign. He is our king. So he's not our buddy. He's not our co-worker, right? right? He's the undisputed king of the universe, and, and you ought to live reverently before him. You ought to willingly give him your allegiance and you ought to seek to grow in your relationship with Him through holiness and obedience, not to be saved, but as the fruit and the outworking of the fact that He loves you. 
Another popular thing that people will say rather than confess Jesus is Lord is you just need to invite Jesus to be your personal Savior. But notice that's not how Paul puts it. I mean, don't misunderstand. Jesus is our Savior. And your relationship with Jesus is personal. It is a personal relationship. It is not like just a corporate relationship. Jesus knows you. He knows every hair that's on your head. He knows everything there is about your life and every thought that you've ever had. It's a personal relationship and He personally saves us. But the wording of that phrase is a deflection because that expression emphasizes a passivity on Christ's part and a lack of commitment on our behalf towards Christ. Because the word invite emphasizes that we're the one who grants Jesus permission to do something. You you realize that, right? We invite Him to save us. Jesus, I invite you to come here and save me. Jesus, I grant you permission to bring me into your kingdom. Jesus, I, I invite you to adopt me into your family. Doesn't quite sound right. The truth is Jesus doesn't need our permission to do anything. He's the king. Secondly, people emphasize the word Savior and ignore the word Lord because because we want Jesus to rescue us, right? We want Jesus to take the punishment for us. We want Jesus to die in our place, but we don't necessarily want Jesus to be the King or the Lord. Remember, there are two errors that people can fall into. One is legalism, which is we have to obey all the rules to be saved. And the other one is antinomianism, which is, you know, if I just pray some prayer, then I'm good forever and I can live however I want to. If I pray this prayer, I can live like a demon and I'm good. I got my ticket to heaven all punched. and we're... This, this attitude has led to easy believism and anti-lordship salvation, which is the idea that you can trust Jesus for salvation, but then not make him the Lord of your life. But notice our confession, as Paul states it, is that He is the Lord. He is the King, and He's the Lord of all things, including our lives. But even more to the point, this phrase, confess Jesus is Lord, reveals the truth about who Jesus is. In fact, this phrase is connected with the last verse where Paul says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, if Jesus is Lord, and we're to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved, what is the name of the Lord we need to call on to be saved? It is what? Jesus. Okay. Now, with that understanding, just quickly turn with me to Joel chapter 2. It is in the Old Testament between Hosea and Amos. It's a little section. If you, if you hit Malachi, you've went too far. Joel chapter 2 and in verse 32, I want you to see what's written there. Joel writes, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, shall be saved. This is where Paul gets it, by the way, right? But the thing I want you to see in this text, I want you to see with your own eyes, right, is is how the word Lord is spelled there in the text. Notice something is weird, something kind of strange about it, right? It's not capital L and then lowercase O-R-D. It's capital, big capital L, but also small capital O-R-D. That is, that is written like that for a very specific reason. You see, whenever you see the word Lord written in that fashion, when you see it's all capital letters in the Old Testament, what you're seeing is the English rendering of the Hebrew word that is spelled Y-H-W-H, which is what's called the Tetragrammaton, which is basically the all-consonant version of the name of God. We pronounce that name, Matt pronounced it this morning, as Yahweh, right? So when you see that word Lord, L-O-R-D, all capitals, you can think in your mind, that is the name of God. That is Yahweh, right? You're seeing the divine name. Now, some people say, well, it's Jehovah. Actually, that's a a misrendering and a misinterpretation um, from German to English, uh, but it's actually pronounced Yahweh. 
That's the name of God in the Old Testament. And what, what Joel is saying is everyone who will call on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of God will be saved. And this is the, the verse that Paul quotes here. And by the way, Peter also quotes this verse in the very first sermon at Pentecost. But Paul quotes this verse and he's saying, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord or Yahweh will be saved. Right? And he says, if you will confess that Jesus is Lord, and that's the same exact Greek word for Lord, what's Paul saying here? What's he meaning here? That Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. When Paul says that Jesus is Lord, that we confess that Jesus is Lord, we are confessing the foundational truth that Jesus is God incarnate. The foundational truth of our confession is the identity of Christ. He is none other than God incarnate. We call him Lord because he is the king and he is our God. He is the eternal son, which means Jesus is not simply the perfect example of humanity. He's not just some inspiring rabbi with a great message. And he's not just some wonderful man who lived a long time ago. And he's not just some simple spiritual guide that leads us on our spiritual journey. He is the creator of all things, God himself. By the way, John says that so clearly in his gospel, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and we know that the Word is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, we don't confess Jesus is our friend, right? And we don't just simply invite Jesus, our friend, to save us. Jesus is our God and King, and we confess that, that He is Lord, and that He has already done all that's required to save us. We just simply need to acknowledge Him for who He is and confess Him as Lord and believe and trust in what he has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And then Paul continues and says, For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Again, this is the open call to the gospel. Everyone who believes will be saved. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life. It doesn't matter what nationality you are. It doesn't matter... What family you grew up in, doesn't matter how poor you are or how rich you were, it doesn't matter about the color of your skin. The promise is universal for all people. If you will confess openly and outwardly that Jesus is Lord and you will believe that He died and rose from the grave to set you free, you absolutely, unequivocally, without question, will be saved. I don't care who you are. The gospel is the great equalizer of all people. Paul says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So here's the thing that we need to understand. The gospel is exclusively inclusive. Some people push back on the exclusivity of the gospel. They get upset that you have to believe in Jesus to be saved. You mean to tell me, right, if I don't put my faith in Jesus Christ, I'm not saved, even if I do this and I do that and I'm a good person? That's right. That's exactly what I'm telling you. You must believe in Jesus. Well, that's very narrow-minded of you, you bigot. Well, it is true that Christianity is exclusive because you have to believe to be saved. But, but, if you, but here's the thing. It's also radically inclusive because everybody is welcome to come to Christ by faith. Right? Everybody's welcome to come. Everybody is welcome to come to Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel is open. It is true that you have to come through Christ, that He is the only way, but everybody is welcome to come through Him. That's why Christianity is such a radically different faith. It's not like other religions. Some religions, you have to ha be a certain nationality to be saved. In other religions, you have to speak certain languages. In other religions, you have to, to perform certain rules and certain rites and certain rituals. Even in our postmodern world where people deny absolute truth, they will tell you, they will tell you in our culture, if you vote for the wrong person, then you're the demon. You can't be saved. 
If you disagree with somebody politically nowadays, man, you are cast out of the, the kingdom. If you deny their understanding of science or revisionist history, you're beyond redemption. All religions require something out of you to join their club. And not everybody qualifies. But all are welcome to come to Christ. You understand that, right? David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, serial killer. Have you ever heard his story? Okay. He gave his life to Christ in prison. Now, when the, when, the, when the person was preaching the gospel to him, you know, he kept saying, God will never accept me. God will never love me. And they just kept preaching the gospel. And finally, he come to faith and realizes God can save anybody. Right? You do have to come to faith, but all are welcome to come. And it's just that simple. And I want you to notice how Paul just can, can, can repeats the idea multiple times in a short section. He says, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul repeats it again and again and again to make sure that we don't miss the point. It is just that simple. Now, as we stand here on the precipice of Easter... And as we begin to think about Holy Week and Palm Sunday, and as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then what do we do with this truth? Well, if you're not in Christ, I want you to hear me. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. If you have never put your faith in Christ, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you can be saved. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that, that, that Jesus did do all the things that the Bible says He did for you, that He did live for your righteousness, that He did die in your place, and that God rose Him from the dead, proving that it's truthful. And the promise is if you'll believe that, you'll be saved. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe the gospel. And you can do that today. And in fact, if you're someone who hasn't received Christ to this point in your life and you're like ready to, to have that conversation, you're ready to believe, then come see me after the service or you know, email me, call me, whatever, and, we'll, and I will help you to walk through the Scriptures so you can know and be confident that you belong to Christ. Believe the gospel and be saved. If you are in Christ, as we say, then this is a good time to rest in the gospel. All of you have a lot of stuff in your life. All of you have things that are going on in your life that, that causes you grief and pain and frustration. All of you have things tugging on you. And there are those moments in your life you're wondering, like, is God even there? Does God even love me? Or if you're like me at times, you're like, man, am I even saved, man? Because I do stupid stuff, right? All of you at different times, or having moments like that where you're struggling just to just breathe, just to get by, right? What I want to encourage you is to rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that He loved you so much that He sent His Son into the world to die in your place, that your sins were cast upon Him, and that by faith your, His righteousness is credited to you. And you don't have to go out tomorrow and earn God's love he already loves you. All you do is receive it by faith. And if you receive it by faith, then rest in that. Trust in that. And then when you begin to feel that feeling well up inside of you, like he must not love me, you must just remember what he promised. If you'll believe, then you're saved. Believe, and you're saved. That's what we have to hold on to. It's like, Lord, save me. I keep making a mess of things, and I know that I don't deserve it, but you promised and I'm holding on to that promise that you said that you would save me. And so in 
these days where you see more ki- your little kids in pastel colors and you're having a great time, rest in Christ. And when you have those days when you bump your head and things don't go right, rest in Christ. And then finally then, if you're in Christ, let us go out and rescue the lost. Nobody said that you have to be this perfect Christian to go out and share the hope with Christ with other people. That's a lie from the pit of hell because there ain't no perfect Christians, by the way. Right? And if you meet a perfect Christian, they're just doing a really good job at hiding their stuff from you. And they're just pretending to be something that they're not. Right? But all of us can go out and tell people and say, I'm having a tough day, but I'm trusting in Christ. And He can give you the comfort and the strength that I have as well. Let me tell you about Him. That's the message we have. And by the way, if you have people in your heart that, are, that you want to hear the gospel, bring them next Sunday. They will hear it, I promise. Right, this will be a good time for us to celebrate. Bring them to breakfast and let them see the fellowship that we have and the love that we have for one another. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.